That is our confession, uh, Christ. Father, we come to you not because of what we've done or what we deserve. Thankfully, we come to you on the basis of the fact that we're in him, that he is the one who's lived for us and he's the one who's died for us and he's the one who's risen for our justification and he's the one who intercedes even now for us and he's the one who will come again to get us, to take us to the place where he's been preparing. Father, it's all Christ and we hope and depend upon him alone. So please now help us, show us Christ. Let us know precisely who he is and what he's done and all that that means for us. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to 1 Peter in chapter 3. 1 Peter in chapter 3. I want to read verses 13 through 16. 1 Peter in chapter 3. 1 Peter 3.13 Hear the word of God. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, this verse 15 and the early part of verse 16 are very well-known um, words in this letter, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Do you feel that? Do you understand that? Do you feel that coming from Peter, this apostle? And I say that because, A, he wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, obviously, this comes from a man who went from hope to hopelessness and then to hope again. And now he's saying that we should be people who have such great hope in the course of our lives that people should be able to see it. And when they see it, they will inquire. And they inquire because it's so odd. Because it's so strange. Because Peter's writing to a group of people here who are losing, it appears, and on the brink of losing all that people normally put their hope in, whether they admit it or not. Because Peter's writing to a group of people who are suffering various trials, the normal trials of life, but suffering through them in such a way that he says that you ought to live with such hope even in the midst of them, even though your health may be going or your wealth may be going or something like that. Live with such great hope that people will observe your hope and think it's so odd that you haven't given up, so odd that you're not living in despair, that they inquire about it. And not only that, Peter's writing to a group of people that are beginning in process of being persecuted for their faith, as he says here, for righteousness' sake. In fact, as we said before, these people are on the cusp of the craziness of Nero. It's likely that in a year or two from this time that these words will ring incredibly strong in their minds because Nero will begin that persecution of believers in certain, at least a certain part of the world. So Peter says you to live in such a way with such great hope. Now, remember this Peter. He was chosen by Jesus to walk with him and be a disciple. 
And no doubt in the very beginnings of all of that, he had great hope as he came to hear what Jesus had to say. Here's the one who's the Messiah. Here's the one who's going to be, as Moses wrote in Genesis chapter 3, to be the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. He's the one. He's the one who's prefigured in the law as the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. He's the one who will intercede for us as a high priest and go to God on our behalf as that perfect priest and perfect sacrifice. He's the one who will be the king of whom David heard of and and whom David was a prototype. He was to sit on the throne of David and rule and reign. He's the one that Isaiah would speak of as this child being born to us. And the government, the rule of God would be upon his shoulders. And he would be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And his rule would know no end. Peter is walking with Jesus, thinking all these thoughts. And and then Jesus confronts Peter and the other disciples to tell them how this is going to come about, you remember. And he says to Peter and the other disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And there I'm going to be betrayed. And there I'm going to be beaten. And there I'm going to to be killed. And you remember Peter said, no way. Because that would destroy his hope. There's a sense in which Peter said, no, Jesus, over my dead body, that is Peter's, only over my dead body is this going to happen to you. Do you remember Jesus rebuked Peter? But it appears as if Peter never really gave up that notion, that thought that he could protect Jesus from this death. And so when the soldiers came against Jesus, Peter pulls his sword and you remember he cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers coming towards Jesus. And Jesus rebukes Peter again and says, put that sword away. And then amazingly, he takes this guy's ear and sticks it back on. Peter's got to feel pretty helpless at that point. I guess this isn't going to work. Jesus keeps healing the people I keep stabbing. (laughs) But you remember that night it went downhill for Peter because he observed all of this play out before him. He observed it. He saw it. He saw that they did come and get Jesus and they did try him and, and, and they did beat him. In fact, all that Peter could see to do then to gain any sense of security, any sense of hope, was to disassociate himself as much as he possibly could with Jesus. And he denied him. But then something happened. It was after Jesus had been dead a little while that Peter saw him again. And when he did, he said, And now Peter's saying, you need to see him like I've seen him. You need to know him like I know him. And there you will have hope. And you will have such great hope, he says, says Peter, that you won't be afraid. Verse 13, he says, Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Peter's saying, you know, in the normal course of events, in the normal course of time, the rule of thumb in which we operate is if we do good, everything will be okay. You know, that generally works. You know, nice generally works. Good generally works. Do the right thing generally works. But he says, verse 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, says there's this possibility. In fact, Jesus was was very strong on this possibility. That even for the sake of righteousness, we may suffer, it may be God's will, that we may suffer for righteousness' sake, for doing good. He said, even if that occurs, he says, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Interesting expression. We came across an expression like this in chapter 3, talking about uh, Sarah and women. uh, and, And there the expression is, Don't be afraid of that which is frightening. And here it's, don't be afraid of of the terror. Don't be afraid of those who frighten you. See, this is real frightful stuff. 
It isn't that it's play-acting. It isn't that it's just going to appear as if this is really easy to get around. No, this is going to appear, because it is, as that which would frighten human beings. In fact, that's what's going to make everybody sit up and marvel at these people, because they're not going to be troubled by it. When it should be troubling. When someone comes and reviles you, someone comes and insults you, someone comes and, and destroys your reputation, destroys your name, that should frighten you. That should be troubling to you. And Peter says, don't let that trouble you. Don't be frightened by that. When people come and they take away your house because you're a Christian, when they come and they take away your job because you're a Christian, they take away your health that if they beat you because you're a Christian, in most cases, for human beings, that would be a frightful thing. That's the normal course of events. That's a normal feeling. That's the normal response to be afraid of these things. And Peter's saying, don't be afraid of that. Don't let that trouble you. In fact, show them that you still have hope. As they take away all this stuff, and your health, that you would normally put your hope in, whether it's the opinions of others, whether it's your financial security, whether it's your prestige, whether it's things that you find pleasurable, when they take away all of this and people see that you've been stripped of all that normal people normally hope in so that they don't get discouraged and have great despair. He says, then they'll go, wow, what's up with you? Why aren't you despairing? What is there about you that's given you this hope? Now, this theme has been developing in Peter's epistle as we've been walking through. For instance, in chapter 2, in verse 12, Peter wrote this. He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, Peter's beginning there to develop this notion that the way that we live is being observed. And the way that we live is being observed hopefully in such a way that people will see it, and on the day of his visitation, on the day of God's visitation, they should glorify him. And we, when we went through this, that little notion of the day of visitation could mean when Christ returns. When he visits in his consummation, his second coming, and he comes, and every knee will bow, bow and every t- will declare that Jesus is Lord. Or it could be more personal, It could be on the day of the visitation that happens to all who come to faith. And that Peter is saying, watch your conduct. Live in such a way that when people observe you, they're actually drawn to Christ. And he visits them with salvation. Then later in chapter 2, in verse 15, Peter writes, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. saying, the way that you live should speak. It should argue on behalf of Christ. So much so... That when people see your lives, if they come against you, your life should silence them. They should walk away thinking, I'm a fool. Forever criticizing, forever coming against that believer. Then in chapter 3, he says a similar thing to wives married to unbelievers. He says, likewise, wives be submissive to your own husband so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see you respectful. And so he's saying to these wives, live your life in such a way that will actually show the truth of Christ because you'll be watched. People will see it. And now he's coming full circle by saying, you need to be prepared. 
You need to be ready. You need to be ready because people are watching and people will ask you about the hope that you have. And the reason that they're going to ask you about the hope that you have is because you'll find yourselves in situations, whether they're sort of the normal situations of life with cancer or loss of a job or KU dropping your major from its program or whatever those great trials may be to being insulted because you're a believer, suffering for righteousness sake. These situations will come into the context of your lives from time to time, some more, some less, and people will be watching. And when all this stuff is stripped away that normal people hope in, and you're not in despair, they'll go, wow, how do you live? Peter says, be prepared for that. And when that occurs, he says, I want you to be ready to make a defense to anybody who asks to give a reason for the hope that you have. And he's to lay this out. Now you might be thinking, I hope you're thinking, you might be thinking this. You might be thinking, does that mean now that I need to have an answer for every question that everybody's ever going to ask me about Christianity? Oh no, here we go. The guy's going to tell me I need to be this great evangelist and I need to go out armed with all these answers to things like, why did 9-11 happen? Why did the Holocaust happen? Why am I not a Hindu? Why am I not a Buddhist? Why am I not Islamic? What's the relationship between predestination and free will? Or the hard one, which is explain the relationship between human responsibility and God's sovereignty, free will and predestination, we can deal with. The hard one is the relationship between human responsibility and God's sovereignty. And the answer is no, that's not what Peter's saying. Now, now please, learn every answer you can possibly learn to every question. I mean, go for it. Some of you will be better than that than others. Some by your calling, some by your giftedness, some, frankly, simply because of the way that you're wired. But every believer, you see, is to be able to defend their hope. Every believer is to be able to, to have hope and to be able to share that. That's what Peter's saying something very, very personal here. He's saying, listen, if you're a believer in Christ, where's your hope? Do you have it? What if all this other stuff is taken away? Can you make it on what you just sang? Christ alone. Can you? And when he says make a defense, the, the original language is that you're to make an apology. That's the old language for making a defense. If you go to seminary and you take courses, you will take a course in call, what's called apologetics. Now, we've really wreaked havoc on that little word apology because when we think about somebody making an apology, we, we think they're going to say they're sorry for something. But that's just the way we've twisted the word because we don't like to say, I'm sorry. And we don't like the real concept, which is confession. And so we say, I'm going to apologize, which means I'm going to tell you that I did it, but I'm going to tell you why I did it, so you won't think it's really that bad. See, when you go into a court of law, you should hire a defense attorney, which we could also call an apologist, to come in and make a defense for you. Peter says, make an apology. He doesn't mean say you're sorry for having hope. He's saying, tell why. Give the reason. Tell why you have hope. Be ready to do that. Now, hope means this. 
And we have an expectation that something good is going to come. See, hope includes faith that as we believe something's going to take place. But it's more than just faith. For instance, my family, my extended family in South Florida, has had faith now for days that another hurricane is going to hit. That was not their hope. My sister just called this morning and says, yes, it's raining sideways, hard. Um, that is their hope. Hope means, yes, I believe something's going to take place, but what I believe is going to take place is going to be something good, going to be, bring joy to me. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beneficial expectation. It's kind of faith on tiptoes. It's this expectation, yes, I believe, even though I don't see, but what I don't see is something that's good, so I'm anticipating this good that's going to come. So Peter's saying, even when you're in this time of great difficulty, when things are being taken away from you, in which most normal people have some sense of hope, you're to still have hope, to expect, to expect that good will come. And it isn't a pie-in-the-sky kind of thing, it's an objective thing. You really have a certainty that good is going to come. And so the question is, what's that certainty? And what is to be our hope? Remember a couple of weeks ago I said, there's one answer to every Christian quiz. Every Christian question has one answer. You write it on your hand. When you get in trouble, you go, Jesus. All right? Christ is the hope. Peter says this, don't be troubled, but in your hearts that is in the very essence of your being, all of your thinking, your will, your remo- in your heart, in who you are, he says, in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Understand him, that Christ is the Lord. For instance, in Psalm 46, not explicitly about Jesus, but God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now, never been in an earthquake, but I have this sneaking suspicion If I'm on a mountain and it starts drifting into the sea, that will trouble me. That will cause me to become afraid. The psalmist says, don't be. Don't be afraid. Why? He says, because God is our refuge and strength. Verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. You see, what's really scary in the whole scheme of things is to think on the one hand that nobody's in control or on the other hand that somebody evil is in control. That's what's scary. But God says, you don't need to be afraid, really, because I will be exalted. A time will come when you'll see me. And even though right now you're on the mountain and it's sliding towards the Atlantic or the Pacific, depending on, you know, where you're going, and it's starting to slide, don't be afraid. Don't panic. Don't be troubled. Why? Because a day will come when you'll see me. A day will come when I'll be exalted. As you're sliding into the ocean, I'll be there. And that's been Peter's point. If you go back to 1 Peter, uh, we'll go back to the Old Testament in a minute, I'm just going to, Give you a little aerobic stuff. 
First Peter chapter 3. We did, we did this last week. Verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. He's saying, listen, when people are insulting you because, because of Christ, you'll be blessed if you don't revile back. What's the blessing? The blessing, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. He said, listen, God will see you, and God will hear you. That's the blessing. That is, he'll be with you. As the mountain is moving towards the sea, he'll be with you. You'll be blessed. Chapter 4 of 1 Peter, verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Why? Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He will be with you. Don't be afraid. And Peter says, when you know that Christ is the Lord, when you know that He's the Lord, your opponents aren't the Lord. You're not the Lord. The mountains aren't the Lord. The sea isn't the Lord. The cancer isn't the Lord. Your boss isn't the Lord. Your professors aren't the Lord. Your roommates aren't the Lord. Your spouse isn't the Lord. Christ is the Lord. We understand that He's the one who's the Lord and He's the one who's in control and He's the one who's sovereign over all these circumstances and situations and He's at work and He rests upon you and He sees you and He hears you, then don't be afraid because if He is for you, who can be against you? Really? Peter is not saying anything new, of course. If you look in Isaiah in chapter 8, you read this from the prophets. This takes place in a situation in the ministry of Isaiah when um, the Israelites were, con- were trying to make a pact with the Assyrians because they were afraid. They were afraid to be on their own. They were afraid to face their enemies alone. And so they're thinking about having a pact with a godless nation. So verse 11 of Isaiah chapter 8. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear nor be, do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall regard as holy. Let Him be your fear and let Him be your dread, and He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. God is saying to the people through Isaiah, don't be afraid of those enemies. Fear me. I'm the Holy One. They are not. Do you understand that what we regard as holy, we fear. What we fear, we regard as holy, set apart, different. So different that it affects our lives. For instance, if you're afraid of the dark, you regard darkness as holy, set apart, different than all the stuff that doesn't scare you. And so how do you arrange your life? You arrange your, your life away from darkness. If you hear that something is dark and you know that something is dark, that dictates what you do. You don't go there. You go someplace else. If you're afraid of the water, you do not plan lake vacations. 
lake water is holy. It's set apart. It's different. I, people tell me, I don't know why they, I know why they tell me this, I have a fear of heights. I can't, I can't like be the highest thing. I get dizzy. If I'm the highest thing around me, if I'm on a mountain, and it's no matter how wide the space is that I'm walking, if there's no other mountain higher than me that's close enough that I see it, I get dizzy. I just think it's a humility thing. Uh, but I'm the only one who thinks that. I'm quite proud of that, though. But um, So that dictates my life. That's holy to me. That, 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 that's set apart for me. When we climb mountains as a family, I go about three-fourths of the way up, and I send the rest of them up. I keep the M&Ms. But I send the rest of them up and say, you know, meet me on the way back down, because I just can't do that. I don't do rooms. I just, you know, just don't. And God says, what you fear is what you're regarding as holy. It's separate, it's different. And so he says, don't fear your opponents. They're not holy. Don't, 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 don't fear uh, the market. It's not holy. Okay? Don't fear the cancer. It's not holy. Don't fear the trouble. It's not holy. Don't fear the opponents who are coming against you. They're not holy. They shouldn't be put in that sacred position. They shouldn't be put in that set-apart position, that position that gives them rule over your life. But rather this, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Set apart Christ in your hearts. Christ the Lord. He's the Lord. He's the one in control. He's the sovereign one. Look to Him and to Him alone. He's the only one who deserves that respect, that holiness. So respect, revere him. Don't regard these others as holy. So they were to hope in Christ. They were to hope in Christ. They were to see that Christ was more valuable. Christ was more satisfying. Christ was more trustworthy. Christ was more secure than everything they were losing from their health to their wealth to their reputation. In Hebrews and chapter 10, we see this being played out with a group of people, for instance. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. The author of Hebrews writes, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So he's saying, listen, here's your life. You're on a mountain. It's going into the sea. Everything that human beings hold dear was being taken from you. Your reputation, your wealth, all of that taken from you. Verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Okay? Not writing directly to Americans, but this sort of hits us, doesn't it? And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What did they have that was a better possession and an abiding one? Jesus, right? The answer, Christ. He was satisfying. He was all they really needed in Christ alone. And Peter says, when you live like that, when you live not afraid because you know Christ, when you live like that, People will stop you eventually and ask you, what's your hope? You don't need to explain to them at that point in time 
how 9-11 could have happened, how the Holocaust could have happened. All you need explain to them at that moment in time is why you have hope. How it is that Christ fills you. How it is that Christ is your security. How it is that Christ is your hope. They'll have questions you can't answer. But the one thing they can't debate you about, the one thing they can't contradict in the context of your own life, is the reason why Christ is your hope. I think in the context of my own life. And I wonder, what hope do I have to stand before a holy God? What hope do I have to stand before a holy God? If I'm standing before Him alone, if I'm standing before Him on the basis of what I've done in the course of my life, I have no hope. So where's my hope? In Jesus. That's my hope. And I stand in Him. Thus I have perfect hope. Because I think of the course of my own life and I think of the sins that I've committed in the past. I think of the sins which I'm still struggling with in the context of my own life now. And I look and I anticipate. I don't anticipate sinless perfection from today until I die. And I trust you don't expect that of me either. I'll be faithful to that. Um, What's my hope? My only hope is Christ. And so when people ask me, why are you a believer? I tell them, because I'm a sinner. And I need a Savior. And they may laugh, or they may ridicule, they may think I'm an idiot, they may think that, I don't know what they think. But all I can tell them is, I know that to be true of me. And, and where else could I find a Savior like, like Jesus? Have you ever known anyone with more compassion? Have you ever known anyone with more goodness? Have you ever known anyone who is God with us? Have you ever known anyone who died as he died to take our sin upon him? Have you ever known anyone who rose from the dead and said, I did it? I need him. I need what he did. He is my hope and my only hope. I think about the course of life coming in the decades to come. And I think in the context of my own life. And when people ask me, what hope do I have for the next, I don't know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, however long I live? I'm 52. I know that in the decades of my life, and now I'm not a big planner. I'm pretty much a day-by-day kind of guy. I drive some other people in my family relatively crazy with that attitude. Because uh, there are other people who are better planners than me, and that's good. It's good to be long-range planners. But as even I think about the next 10 years, the next 20 years, the next 30 years, I realize that some very significant things are going to happen in the context of my health, in the context of my wealth, in the context of the life of my family. And you may be thinking in the context of your own life. Most of us look down the road and wonder, I suppose, how are we going to make it? Unless you're between 18 and like 20, and then you have it all together and you're indestructible. But if you're past that, phase in the course of your life, begin to think, what's going to happen after that? What wisdom do I need to get through those years? What strength do I need to get through those years? How am I going to make it in the context of life, persevering in faith, maintaining a sense of joy in the context of my own life? How will I know? How will I have the strength to do that? And again, the answer is in Christ. He will help us. He'll see. He'll hear. He'll bless. He'll be with us. When mountains are flowing into the sea in the context of our own lives, He will be exalted. 
He is good, and He is the one who is the Lord. Peter says, regard Christ the Lord as holy. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that we make Him the Lord of our life. Because He already is. He's the Lord. And so we don't make Him the Lord. We don't do anything special to make Him the Lord. We use that expression from time to time in the faith. And I understand why you use it. I used to use it until now. It's become one of those things I don't use anymore because I think it's confusing. Oftentimes we may share our testimony to say that when I was 18, I accepted Christ as my Savior. And then when I was 25, I made Jesus Lord of my life. I have a feeling Jesus is sitting back going, thanks. Uh, I wasn't until you said so, but now that you say so, I guess I'll be it. No. He is the Lord. I mean, that's who He is. We don't make Him that. He is it. But Peter says, regard Him as such. Understand who He is. Understand Him as the Lord, as the very one who is sovereign, the very one who is in control, the very one who is holy. So think about Him like that. And then when you think of your sin, you realize he's the one who has authority over sin and death. Thus, I'm saved. Because he's the Lord. He's the one who has authority over these circumstances and, 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 and all that's happening in the place of my life. He will be exalted because he is the Lord. And the way you see that we regard him as holy is that we hallow his name. When you pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You're praying that God be holy, that he be the supreme one, that he be the one that you look to and the one you look to alone for all of life. And now Peter is saying, Jesus, since he's also divine, since he's God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Father, Son, that he is to be holy in your life. And so we pray it. Oh, Lord Jesus, be holy in the context of my life. Be the one that I revere. Be the one that I fear. Be the one that I look to. Be the one that I trust in. Be the one that I'm satisfied in. Be the one that I'm content in. Be the one that I look to for everything in the context of my life. Be my hope. And then he says that we're to live hopeful lives. If you want to be prepared to share the hope that's in you, then live hopeful. Live trusting. Live looking to Christ. Live being satisfied in Him and Him alone. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, related to it like this. You know, Bunyan was imprisoned for 12 years for his faith. Dismal circumstance. Difficult family situation that he left behind. And he writes this. He says, By this scripture I was made to see That if ever I would suffer rightly, I must first pass a sentence of death upon everything that can properly be called a thing of this life, even to reckon myself, my wife, my children, my health, my enjoyments, and all is dead to me and myself is dead to them. Let me read that again, he said. By this scripture I was made to see that if ever I would suffer rightly, I must first pass a sentence of death upon everything that can properly be called a thing of this life. Everything that we normally hold on to, we normally think, is, is, is a piece of security to us. 
He says, what I did is I just simply went around piece by piece when he was in prison, and I passed a sentence of death on it. I said, that's not going to be my hope. It might be nice. I mean, I think having a car versus not having a car is a nice thing generally. Having a house versus not having a house is a nice thing generally. Having a nice family versus not having a nice family is a nice thing. But it's not your hope. And in that sense, he said, no, that won't be my hope. I can't put my hope in that. I can only put my hope in Christ. And when Bunyan came out of prison, his testimony, as well as the testimony of countless Christians throughout the centuries, has been, Christ is all I need. And I don't know about you, but when I hear people say that, especially those who have suffered greatly and been through great difficult things that I haven't been through because my life has relatively been a piece of cake compared to many of yours and compared to many throughout history, at least so far. There's a certain part of me that's envious at that point to think you must know Christ in a way that I don't. And the point is, he will satisfy. The point is, he will fill. The point is, he will be exalted. And therefore, we don't need to be afraid of what's coming up. We don't need to be afraid of the past because he's Lord and he dealt with it. We don't need to be afraid of the present because he sees and hears and he is with us. And we don't need to be afraid of the future because he holds it in his hands. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me and for us that we would live a life not being afraid. God, I know there are so many things in my own life, let alone real things, more difficult things in other people's lives that are frightful. And our first response, our first reaction is to be afraid, to be terrified, to be troubled by them. I pray that in every moment like that, we turn and we regard Christ the Lord as holy. And then I pray that we would live lives filled with hope, and then I pray that as we do that, the people would see that and they would come to us and they would ask, how can you still hope? And then I pray that you will enable us because of the experience we've had, because of what we know, because of the lives that we've lived, because of the preparation, therefore, that's been made, that we can give the reason. And in giving the reason, we'll exalt Christ. And I pray that all who hear of our hope will hope in him as well. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that elders will be available to pray. So please take advantage of that. There are times when we are going through things, when those mountains are sliding, we go through things that are difficult for us. We need someone to pray for us and to help us and to focus us. So please take advantage of that. The response to the benediction is, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. Now when you say, Jesus is Lord, you're saying, I regard Christ the Lord as holy. Nothing else. He's the only one so sacred as to dictate my emotions and my life. And when you say, hallelujah, you're saying, and that makes me really happy. Which means, praise be to God.
Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence, and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, and be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah.